are uh, still in the middle of Romans 8, looking at how our eternal God ministers to us in the present, gearing us for growth in his grace. That's what Romans 8, that's how we're looking at it, coming to understand it. You might be feeling like, uh, why do we kind of keep coming back to these same themes and things like that? There, there's a principle of Bible study that is important, and it's, it's important by ha- the way that the principle is usually related, and that is that context is king. If, if you learn any steps of Bible study or hermeneutics, that's one of the, the principles that I would hope that you would learn, and, and that's the way this community, context is king. In other words, what verses are, what the context of what God is saying in particular verses needs to rule, context needs to rule over how we are interpreting them. And that's why we come back to, this is where we are. This is what we're learning. This is where God has us in Romans 8. And specifically right here in the middle of the chapter, we're looking at how our hope of eternal glory gears us for growth. It's our eternal glory that we're looking toward. And that is where God takes us in Romans 8. To look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit and then also look at how we're moving toward amidst our suffering, amidst our living in this fallen world. We're moving toward an eternal glory. And that is intended to help us to grow in the present. Main idea we're getting across in these two weeks, last week in this, is that we are geared for growth by having our minds set on our eternal glory with the aid of the Holy Spirit. So let's pick up in verse 18 again as we look at dealing with suffering while waiting for glory. The apostle writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We looked at last week just in review of how we're called to, like Paul, to consider the sufferings that we're going through as not worth even putting on the scales against the glory that we will experience. And so we, we were talking about how we can have that mindset by first considering the relationship between your present suffering and eternal glory. As a Christian, it helps me with suffering to truly know how small my suffering is compared to the glory that I will experience. 
And secondly, we're, we're encouraged to consider the relationship between the cursed creation and our future freedom. As a Christian, it helps me in suffering to truly know that I live in a cursed world that will one day be free to bring glory to God as it's intended. And lastly, we looked at how it helps us to consider the relationship between your inward groaning and your eager waiting. As a Christian, it helps me to deal with suffering to truly know that my ache for eternity is a part of my process of full redemption. Because we're in process of redemption. And the final redemption, as was told to us, is the redemption of our bodies. You just wake up and you know you're not there yet. Right? You know, when I, uh, I've uh, had the joy of remodeling four different homes. And um, I love laying hardwood in homes, you know, the real stuff. The, the solid oak, you know, that you have to sand and then stain and then finish and all that stuff. And I learned in my first home, uh, talking with a, uh, a wood mill, a lumber mill that, that I was going through that are, is, is up in the north woods of Wisconsin. Uh, well, they, they're in central Wisconsin to get technical, but they get all their wood from the north woods of Wisconsin. Friends of Kelly's parents that uh, we were looking at buying wood from, and he was explaining to me how you want wood from the North Woods, and the reason for that is the 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 winter and the weather is so harsh that it makes the growing season so short. The tree grows so slowly, but yet it grows hard. And it grows firm. And it's better than oak that might be grown down in Texas or Tennessee or something like that. And I was thinking about that when I was up in Wisconsin lately. I was looking around at the trees. And, you know, people in Wisconsin, maybe I'm wrong here, I don't think they have to pick up sticks the way that we do in Indiana. Okay? My in-laws have the same exact kind of tree as I have in my front yard. And the tree in my front yard, I know the tips of the, of the limbs had to be trimmed back at some point. And they're due for it again. And they need to be trimmed back because the end of the limbs get old and rotted and, and dead. I don't think my in-laws have ever had to do that to their silver maple tree in their backyard. Why is that? Because the winter is hard. The weather is hard. And the trees grow strong. And when the weather is easy, you might not feel like we have easy winters here, but compared to central Wisconsin, we do. When the weather is easy, when the conditions are not as harsh, the trees grow soft. It's a lesson from nature, I guess. It's important to remember that the verses that we're reading today are in the context of suffering. They're in the context of dealing with broken bodies damaged by the fall in the midst of a broken world. Season of suffering is being gone through by many of our family here. Diagnoses that were 
we're not expecting. Family situations that we just don't seem to be able to see a way through. Parenting challenges. Sickness. These words are for us. And we're intended to take to heart in our eternal glory and the fact that we aren't left alone in it. In fact, nothing can be farther from the truth. So we're looking today at verses 26 through 27. It says, likewise, meaning in the midst of, in the midst of these sufferings, in the midst of only having hope, likewise, the Spirit himself, the Spirit helps in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now the main idea of these verses is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in pleading our cause. Okay, so it, it comes up twice here of the ministry of the Holy Spirit of interceding for us. He himself intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for the saints. To, to intercede means to approach or to appeal on behalf of someone else. The Spirit does this for us. And the present tense is used here, meaning he continually, he keeps on interceding for us. Robertson says, it's a picturesque word of rescue by one who who happens on someone who's in trouble and comes and says, look, this person's in trouble. They need help. That's the picture of this interceding word. He applies his wisdom and his knowledge to our need, knowing what we don't know about the situation, knowing what we don't know that we need. And not don't be confused here with the intercession that Jesus makes for us. And we'll touch on that at the end of chapter 8. But John Murray says about this, Thus the children of God have two divine intercessors. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven, while the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. Now recall... That Romans 8 here is giving us a picture of our relationship with God, particularly from God's perspective. All right? And back to this lesson. You know, our relationship with God is like this cone. And and from looking at it from one direction, you see something completely different than if you look at it from another. And and we we can think in reading these verses... For instance, well, it doesn't matter what you pray. God's going to do what he's going to do. That can't be the farthest from the truth. We're told in plenty of other places to bring our supplications, to bring our needs before the throne of grace, to find help and to find grace in time of need. Okay, so we're given prayer here in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in prayer from God's perspective. And it's important to point out here from the start that we see relationship being exercised here. 
relationship with God amidst our needs. We're pragmatic people. That means it's like we want to know how to get things done the fastest way possible. We want a set it and forget it relationship with God, right? We want to just like send it up, get it done, let's move on to the next thing. It's very Western. We desire to be to be told how something is being done for us so that we concern ourselves with other things. Everything in our passage here is pointing to how God interacts with his children in the midst of our need. For instance, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us as we pray, okay? This passage is not meant to say the Holy Spirit does your praying for you. Nor is it meant to teach us that it doesn't matter what you pray. God's just going to do what he's going to do. It's meant to show from God's perspective how prayer, our prayer, our needs, our silent groaning, I don't know what to pray, is an interaction with the Trinity, with the triune God himself. And suffering, again, is the context of the intercessions that we're talking about. As one writer said, when the outlook is bad, try the uplook. That's what we're being told here. And when we look up in prayer amidst suffering, that's when we're told that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit pleads our case first in helping us to deal with life. We're told, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You might recall that Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, I will send a helper to you. The term here, helps, is to help by joining in an activity or effort, by joining in with help. It's, it's what's used in Luke 10. You might remember this situation where Jesus is in the home of the sisters Mary and Martha, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet And Martha is off in the kitchen trying to get things ready for Jesus and his disciples. And and she comes to Jesus and she says, says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, being Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. That's the term here. Now she's not saying, tell her to take over for me. Tag, you know. She's in, I'm, I'm out, I'm with you here. It's help, tell her to help me do what I'm doing. Again, the Holy Spirit doesn't take over prayer for us. It's our, it's our relationship, our interaction with the triune God that's being talked about here. He comes alongside of us. He sits down with us. He puts his arm around us. And he starts groaning with us. The commentator Wiest says, the Holy Spirit indwelling the saint comes to the aid of that saint in his spiritual problems and difficulties, not by taking over the responsibility for them, but by lending a helping hand, allowing him to work out his problems and overcome his difficulties with his help. Again, we see the present tense here. He keeps on helping is the idea. It's not that the Spirit helps on an occasional times when we are weak. Our constant state is one of weakness, and the Holy Spirit is continually helping us. 
if we know Christ as our Savior and have the Spirit indwelling us. It's like if you were to see a friend or, or your spouse or roommate or something come walking in the door and be like, whoa, you know, you might rush out and be like, oh, let me help you with that. And the two of you start to carry it together. That's the picture here. This isn't like Tibetan prayer flags that are thought to send out prayers as they flap in the wind. It's not like a Buddhist prayer wheel that has prayers carved on it. And every time they're spun, that prayer goes out. That's the pragmatic, you know, what do I need to get the gods to do for me? Our relationship with God is that relationship. In everything. The Holy Spirit is constantly stepping into our situation of challenge and suffering in relationship with us. And though our interaction, through our interaction with Him in prayer, we're experiencing greater redemption. I'll explain what I mean by that later. But amidst our sufferings, we often don't know what to pray for. Do we pray for the circumstances to be removed? Do we pray for Him to help us through it? We see here that the Holy Spirit pleads our case because we are clueless. It says we do not know what to pray as we are. The Greek here uses a definite article. Paul's saying we don't know the what in particular to pray for. Romans 8, in some ways, is a description of the the relational side of God's ministry to us, of of the commands of James 1, 2 through 4, where we're told, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, And that's what our good God is working toward. Remember, verse 5 tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. The doubting spoken of here way back years ago when we went through James, you might recall, is a wavering of wanting or not wanting God's will to be done. A wavering in, can I trust Him? Can I, can I lay my, my, my life in His hands? But, but that's the command. And Romans 8 is giving us the relational side of it. That you don't know what to pray for. Do you lack wisdom? Let Him ask of God, James says. And Romans 8 is telling us, when you don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit is interacting with you, is ministering to you in those suffering moments. We're able to see here how the Holy Spirit is, is there with us even when we don't know what to pray for. Maybe especially so. I, I've had several moments of this over the last couple of weeks. I one of the people that I ha- had the chance to speak the most with at our fall festival, uh, the, the man was there and his, his family had moved from Kokomo 
to Newmarket and left him in Kokomo, and he's like, I don't know what to do. And, and, and so he comes down every week or so, visits with his kids, and, and his daughter that he introduces me there to in her stroller says she's a miracle. She only has half a heart. And my, our first child was in the same shape, and, and he died just months into his life. And so I asked him, can I pray for you? Can I pray for her? That's all it started with. But you know, it started with, dear Lord, uh, do you pray for healing? Yes. Do you pray for the surgery that's coming up? Yes. Do you pray for the surgeon's hands? Yes. I think of, I was at um, Community Westview visiting uh, during during Brian's surgery and I'm sitting in the cafeteria doing a little work and and they're closing the place down in a couple weeks and I I had heard about that and overheard the the cafeteria employees kind of talking about where are you going to go what are you going to do you know um and I knew you know it was just hanging over the place and just stopped and came to him and said I'm sorry I I hate to interrupt I just know that this place is closing down I know that you guys livelihood is up in the air. Can I pray for you? You know, it was, dear Lord, uh, you know, praying on the phone with a friend whose dad's moved into hospice care. Same thing, dear Lord, man. (laughs) Praying for Tuesday, for our election, for our country. (laughs) You know, dear Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit, when we don't know what the what to pray that we should, it's there interacting with us. It's a moment of relationship with God. We aren't just called to pray for healing or for God to remove this suffering. We aren't just called to pray for God to give us patience as He does what he's, His thing. We're called into relationship. We're called into communion in that moment to press into Him. We're encouraged to remember that He is helping us and relating our pain and our suffering and our wondering and our confusion. And what we're told next is an amazing account of how we fellowship with God while praying during hardship. We see in verse 26, the Holy Spirit pleads our case, joining us in our groanings. The idea here is wordless groans. The NIV says through wordless groans. The Holman Christian says with unspoken groanings. The New Living says with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. It's the same term actually used to describe what Jesus does in mark seven thirty four as he goes to heal a deaf man's ears it says he looked looking up to heaven he sighed that's the same term here and i don't know about you but i love the fact that when jesus walked the earth he had moments of wordless groans because of where his creation was. 
I can't tell you how often I go to pr- on a prayer walk or sit in my home and it's just in silence for a time. And I don't know why. It's not fretting. It's feeling the weight of so many things. For me, for my family, for our church family, in the presence of God. And it's great comfort to me to know God is interacting with me in that moment. It's a groaning. But is it us groaning or is it the Holy Spirit groaning? Both. That's what's amazing. Right? Believers are already groaning for the redemption of their bodies, as we saw in verse 23. Here the assumption is that we turn these moments of suffering, these moments of groaning, toward the Lord in prayer, and the way, the way that the Holy Spirit is helping us carry our load is to sit down. Remember, He helps us. He picks that up, and the way that He does it is He groans along with us. Think of Job in the Old Testament, right? I mean, he goes through all of this loss. He goes through all of this pain and this illness and this sickness. And he gets no help from the people around him. Why? Because they feel like they got to say something. They got to do something. They got to find what happened here. They got to get to the answer. My wife is like thinking of all those many conversations that we have. You know, it's like, okay, well, what's, what's really the problem here? Let's, let's get to the bottom of it. Let's fix this, you know. I'm sorry, but um, uh, we as husbands don't always just sit down and listen and just enter into the groaning very well. But Job's friends and his wife, they don't do what the Spirit does with us. Sits down and enters into what we're going through. He identifies with our pain and our suffering in this fallen world. He hears our wordless groaning and cobbled together expressions, and he intercedes for us with the Father. And like Job's friends, we we have people in our lives that don't model the compassion and the interaction of the triune God. Hopefully you don't have a wife that says, why don't you curse God and die, you know, like Job's wife did. But we have husbands, or we can be husbands that want to fix the situation. We have a friend that doesn't have our best interest in mind. It's like, oh, that's what's going on. You know, they call that a frenemy. Maybe we've had fathers who are a poor picture of the loving, gracious, righteous God that comes alongside of us and says, hey, I'm here. We're given a picture here of how the Holy Spirit enters into our groanings and takes them to the Father God himself enters into your suffering, which is the consequence of the sin and the pain that we brought into this world. He enters into it, much like Jesus did when he walked this earth. He's not distant from you. He's not uncaring about you. He's not waiting for you to just say the right words or to say them enough times, like some sort of mantra. He's working on your behalf even when you don't know what is best at the moment. He's not sitting there going, come on now. You know what you're supposed to ask for. Let's hear it. Lastly, we see that the Holy Spirit pleads our case in keeping with God's will. 
as he who searches the hearts knows what the mind what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God the idea here is that the spirit intercedes according to God's will and therefore God listens and responds as a ch spurgeon said groanings which cannot be uttered are often prayers which cannot be refused We'll see in verses 28 through 29 what God's will is in these moments. It's our being conformed to the image of Christ. We see that and we'll see it next week in Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be Conformed to the image of his son. In other words, that's the good that all things are working toward. To be conformed to the image of Jesus. You know, the Packers play the Colts today. And I am not saying a word. You see, last year I praised the Packers and it came across like an insult to the Colts. And... Kelly is certain that I jinxed the Packers because we went on a losing streak after that point. But we should take comfort in the fact that you're not going to say the wrong thing. You're not going to pray the wrong thing and screw up your life. You're not going to speak out in in dissatisfaction and discomfort to God amidst your suffering and he'd be like, Oh, I can't believe you let that out of your mouth. You talk to your mom with that mouth? You should be glad that as we're told about prayer from God's perspective, that he acts according to his will. But this unearths a question. And it's a question particular to Western Christianity. Then why pray? Right? Why pray? If God's going to act according to his will, why pray? The answer, once again, is it's about relationship. It's about relationship. See, first we see here about how God communes with God. Described as the one who searches the hearts, knows the mind of the spirit. The picture here is that of the silently groaning Holy Spirit, intermingling with our groanings and and being known intimately by the all-knowing God the Father, which the Spirit is all-knowing too, being part of the triune God, not to confuse that. But we're told here that that God the Father who, who searches hearts, in other words, He already knows our needs, We're told that he knows the mind of the Spirit. What is being emphasized here is the communing intimacy that that happens, that occurs, that is there between the members of the Trinity. It's being described in the context of our prayer. And it's meant to show a little redundancy, which I think the original reader was comforted by. But I think that Western Christianity, we're not comforted by this. Why pray? 
is what we ask. Let's understand something about the bigger picture of redemption here. See, God is a communing God. God is the original small group, the original fellowship, the original community. He doesn't describe himself in that way so that we can understand him. We are the way we are because of who he is. Okay? We're the, we're the only part of his creation made in his image. Therefore, we want to have relationship with each other. We want to express what we're thinking, what we're feeling. We want to experience things together. It's because we're made in his image. It's because we have him within us. And we were made in perfect communion with him and in perfect communion with each other. And when sin came into the world, guess what changed? We hid from him and we hid ourselves from each other. And he's moving us toward perfect redemption, being in his presence, completely sinless, separated from a sinful body and in a glorified body again. And his process of redemption, his process of bringing us closer, ever and ever closer to him, is growing in that communing relationship with him and in communion with each other. One of the reasons why we value small groups so much. Redemption is being brought into that fellowship with God again. And it's a fellowship that he has within himself And he gears everything toward us having that fellowship with each other perfectly. And so that's why we're given a description of how to prayer in this, of how how prayer is our participation in this communion within the Trinity. See, God communes also with his children in prayer. The Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. God the Father. Again, it's all interaction. You're like, I know, you've told me that. So the Spirit who indwells us intercedes for us with the Father and we're told the reason why the Trinity is so in step with each other's minds is because the Holy Spirit is interceding according to God's will. And we're intended to be amazed and drawn to the idea that we're welcomed into the community of God in our prayers. But again, I think the majority of Western Christians ask, then why pray? I mean, if it's not me giving God my request and changing what he's going to do, why pray? Again, we're a very pragmatic people. And if we see God as a genie, And prayer is some way of manipulating him, rubbing the bottle so that the genie will come out and do my will. We ask, why would God need me to pray about something? He already knows about it. And if he's already going to act according to his will anyways. The answer is we're participating in our redemption. We're moving closer and closer. We're we're joining in with the communion of the Trinity, the triune God, as the Holy Spirit takes our needs to the Father. And, And it's no more 
clear than in our suffering. From a God-centered perspective, we're experiencing exactly what prayer is meant to be, a communing with the Trinity as he communes with himself. Remember, again, chapter 8 is about growing in God's grace from God's perspective, okay? And today it's about prayer from God's perspective, what goes on in the heavens, if you will. And we tend to ask, well, then why pray? And the answer is, it's about walking in relationship with God. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look at salvation and eternal glory from God's perspective. And we're going to tend to lean toward asking the question, well, then why share the gospel? It's the same answer. It's about walking in relationship with God. And again, it's from God's perspective that we're given this, that we're looking specifically at it in Romans 8. But think of Jesus in the garden, okay? Amidst his suffering, amidst knowing he's going to the cross, amidst realizing this is it, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be hung on a cross. He's already told his disciples that it's coming. Amidst that, amidst his suffering, he says, Father, If possible, let this suffering, let this cup pass by me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He didn't respond with, why don't I even talk with you anymore? You're not going to give me what I want. Don't you see I'm about to die here? The Father's will was for our good that we would be redeemed by Christ's sacrifice. Do you hear this message about God's perspective on prayer and think, what's the point of praying? You may need to be repenting of treating God like a genie. And you know what? I think we all find ourselves in that place plenty of times. And I think suffering brings us face to face with it. And again, Do you see the gift of suffering to refine that out of our relationship with God? He's lovingly moving us away from a mentality that is keeping us from walking in full fellowship with him, full enjoyment of him, and it's for our good, setting aside our preconceptions and fellowshipping with him. Think about that situation in Mary and Martha's home, right? Mary comes to Jesus and she says, hey, will you say something to my sister over here? And really, it's a moment of prayer, if you will. She's bringing the request to the right person. She's bringing the request to the one who has the authority. She's bringing the request to the most important person in the room. And what happens? Her intercession is made. And the response come back, Martha, communion is what matters. Your sister has chosen the better thing. Not impressing me, not doing things for me, walking with me. And letting me walk with you through your trouble. And God's ultimate will is carried out. Martha, I assume 
we can assume, went from that point forward with a deeper relationship with her Lord. That's growing in our redemption amidst the suffering. Deeper relationship with God. I'm going to close in prayer and then Pastor Jeff is going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. And ever important why it is that we're able to come boldly before the throne of grace. Father, I really don't know how to pray about Tuesday. I pray in pain for those in our fellowship that experience sickness, that get bad news, that continue to bump along poorly in relationships. And Lord, you're not surprised by this. In fact, you've allowed for it. You have provided. And it's about, it's a part of walking with you. I just thank you so much that your will can be carried out even though we waver back and forth between what we, we even think that we should ask for and should request. Thank you so much that in everything you're moving us toward deeper and deeper, greater and greater relationship with you. That's the real prize. Not getting what we want. Not getting what we think should happen. Lord, I do pray for those here that are suffering. I pray, Lord God, that you would bring ease to their suffering. Whether that be releasing it or making yourself known amidst it. You have a way, Father, of even bringing us to the place where we're glad we went through it. And that's what I pray for each one of us, Father. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.